Hello, and welcome back to Sondheim on Adderall. I'm Chris. I'll be your host for this episode, episode two of Sondheim on Adderall. Uh, okay, what just happened brings me to my first point. I listened back to the first episode, and I noticed that I say, uh, um, uh, a disastrous number of times. So, I'm going to make a real concerted effort not to do that on this epi. I'm going to be very concise in my speech. I'm going to do that thing that good public speakers do, where instead of saying, uh, or um, they say, now, as a placeholder, while they're thinking of the next word to say. Now, one other thing to address. Uh, A lot of people asked, zero people asked, by the way, uh, that, shit, I did it. Again, sorry. Uh, That the music, people mentioned. People asked me about the music that was playing as an underscore for the last episode. They had uh, two questions. A, what was that strange music? And B, why was it so quiet? To the point where it could hardly be made out. The answer to question A is it was my attempt to noodle at some Sondheim adjacent music without getting into trouble with royalties, which had varying levels of success throughout. The answer to question number two, uh, you couldn't hear it because I don't know what I'm doing sound-wise. And I hastily added it and then turned it down so it wouldn't be too loud. And it was awfully quiet. We'll see how it goes this time around. Anyway, I'm excited to talk about this show. It's a, it's a good one. It's the last, well, it's the last in the Sondheim lyric-only shows that matter. I gotta tell you, I don't think that I'll be talking about Do I Hear a Waltz, because I know next to nothing about Do I Hear a Waltz, other than he wrote it with Richard Rogers, and it sucks, apparently, according to him, and the Broadway community in the early 1960s? Yeah, 1960s. So, there's an Adderall shortage in the United States. Don't know if you've heard about that. There's also uh, a lot of TikTok videos with people with ADHD talking about how their Adderall just ain't hitting like it used to. Some conspiracy theories around whether their Adderall is the same Adderall. I cannot confirm or deny this. I know that uh, I take a certain amount of Adderall per day. I take 25 milligrams. I, I'm, I'll say it here. I don't care. I am, I'm an open book. And I used to take 50, which, if you know anything about amphetamines, is an insane amount to take, even time-released. But what they do is uh, you take 10, and then if uh, that stops working, you take 20, and that stops working, you take 30, then that stops working, you take 50, uh, well, 40, certainly, and then 50. And that's what happened with me. Once I got to 50 and that leveled off, and I found that this is not, uh, it's not that it's not working. The bad stuff is still working. The agitation, 
and the failure to have meals was still happening. I decided what I would do is I would uh, stop taking such a large dose because of the possible health benefits going forward. So uh, now I'm taking a 25. I don't take it every day. I certainly do take it when it's time to record a podcast called Sondheim on Adderall. And this is one of those times. So now that we got the Adderall section of Sondheim on Adderall out of the way, let's talk some Sondheim, can we? Oh, real quick, I found, I was curious what other Sondheim podcasts were out there in the universe, and I listened to one, I won't say what it was, it's, I think it's one of the more prominent ones, because it comes up in searches, and God bless him, I didn't love it, and I think that it, I listened to the one on Gypsy, just because, just to get a little context here since this is Gypsy Week. This is the Gypsy episode, by the way. Did I say that at the top? We're going to talk about Gypsy today. And by we, I mean me alone. I think the whole showbiz actor dialogue between each other thing is what I wanted to avoid with this, which is why I'm not talking to anybody else but myself. Which is not to say that actors don't have anything to say or theater people. It might mean that actors and theater people don't have anything to say. I should tell you that right now. If you are an actor by trade, a proud actor, I'm going to recommend you press stop on this episode because you may or may not get offended. Also, if you're a woman, you might get offended by this episode. I actually, I don't know. It's not like I'm reading a script or anything, but we're going to talk about some stuff. We're going to talk about Gypsy. Hey, Gypsy is now a racial slur. So if that offends you, I can't imagine why you press play on this in the first place. I revisited Gypsy for the purposes of this podcast. Kind of going chronologically, first episode was on West Side Story. If you didn't catch that, uh, it's available now. Going to go chronologically, uh, the next major Sondheim show, Gypsy, 1959. But like I said, we're going to skip a few as we go. Maybe come back to them once this becomes a worldwide sensation. Once I reach the end of the canon, I'll start back at the beginning and make an attempt to have an opinion about Do I Hear a Waltz. I loved Gypsy as a child or as a preteen in middle school and high school. I was in Gypsy in high school, I should tell you that. Performed in it. More on that later. But I had a completely different experience watching Gypsy this time around because of events in my life that have transpired. And when I say watching Gypsy, I do not mean the 1962 Rosalind Russell film, which is not the best version. The best version, say it with me, the Bette Midler one, that's right, from 1993, the made-for-TV movie, largely considered to be the best filmed version of Gypsy. I could be wrong. Hey, I haven't really been up on the musical theater news. Maybe it's been surpassed, but it's pretty good. We're going to talk all about it. Slow down. Don't don't be impatient. We're going to talk about everything to do with Gypsy. So, Gypsy. It's a show about showbiz people. Performers. 
Sondheim talks a little bit about this in Finishing the Hat in such a way that is, uh, he talks about it in such a way that makes me overjoyed because it, it really articulates how I feel about showbiz people, actors specifically. He didn't want to write only lyrics again for a show. He wanted to be considered a serious composer. He had done the lyrics for West Side Story. They didn't mention him in half the reviews. Pissed him off. He said, let me write the score here. This will be great. Ethel Merman, the, for whom Gypsy was to be a star vehicle, said, no way. I'm not taking a chance on an unknown composer. That's bullshit. I need somebody established because I'm a fucking powerhouse star. I'm not going to tolerate this kid up on his hind legs writing songs for me. She had just had some, had a failure on Broadway, a show called Happy Hunting that may or may not have involved a horse on stage. I could be wrong about that. There's a picture of it. it certainly looks like a horse. So Sondheim said, no, I don't want to do this. Then he went to his old pal and mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, who convinced him to do it, saying it'll be a valuable experience to learn how to write for a star. Ethel Merman one of the biggest stars on Broadway. Now, personally, I struggle with actors. I struggle with uh, calling myself one, which I never really have. And I struggle with spending time with actors. Here in Los Angeles, the city of angels, city of actors. I went to an arts high school, studied theater, and a little bit of music, a little bit of opera, believe it or not. Then I uh, got into UCLA for theater, dropped out after a year and a semester. Complex reasons. I was just starting to uh, get high all the time and want to party all the time. And some people can do that and still do homework. I can't. So I didn't. And I dropped out. But another thing that was going on once I got to UCLA was I was sort of realizing how off-kilter I was with the whole actor thing. And I think that I had contempt for actors on a certain level. And I get that that's a oversimplification because there's all kinds of different people, different actors that have different hearts and minds. I had a meeting with my professor uh, in the theater department and he asked me why are you failing all of your theater classes and I said I don't think I like actors which I thought was, he would laugh at because I thought it was like a funny thing to say I thought it was like something we all agreed with and he gave me this grave look and then he was like okay well and then the rest of the meeting was pretty awkward and then I dropped out and so that was that I sort of do it as a hobby now I'll be in a musical maybe once a year, and it'll be one that I like. I've been in a lot of Sondheim, and a lot of just shows I like, and some shows I don't like. Uh, but I do it sort of as a hobby, but I don't really say that to people, to other actors, serious actors that do it, that are on the daily grind, because uh, they, they, they find that offensive. Because I think we come from a culture, we live in a culture that considers acting a hobby overall, and some people do it to pay the bills. And if you can do that, more power to you. But here's what I've never understood. And this kind of the show, this is kind of one of the themes of the show. 
There's a song by Noel Coward, whom Sondheim despises, as a lyricist anyway, called Why Must the Show Go On? It's a brilliant song. And I ask myself that question from time to time. Why must the show go on? Why is it so important? I used to teach children. I I currently teach children. (laughs) Um, I just started again, but I used to, as a career, I was a arts enrichment manager and after-school theater teacher. And I worked with this choreographer who was like, she came from, I think, just she, she, she grew up dancing and did like pageant stuff and did dance stuff her whole life. And so her whole thing was like, no, got to get the steps. Under no circumstances can you not get these steps. And that was her whole teaching style was, it's a privilege to be here. You need to get these steps. We need to get this right. We need to get this right. And there were moments where I would look around and I would say to myself, certainly, because I wouldn't stand up to her. I would say, they're 10 years old. (laughs) Why do they have to get the steps? Does it matter? Like, it'd be one thing if there was some shortage of performers in the world. But quite the opposite. I don't know if you've noticed. We're being entertained to death. We could use a few less performers. We should pay them less. That's not true. Sondheim took a visit to the actor studio with Arthur Lawrence around the time he was doing West Side Story to see Lee Strasberg back when that whole actor studio Strasbourg thing uh, was just starting. And he's got a quote about this in Finishing the Hat that I love. He says, What struck me most was how seriously the actors took themselves, hyperanalyzing both their lives and their craft. When we left the cries of subtext and sense memory ringing in my ears, I commented to Arthur that a lot of what went on seemed to be self-indulgent and pretentious and asked him why he had brought me there. You've got to know the instruments you're working with, he explained, in a tone somewhere between scorn and admiration for them. So Steve's on the same page with me. He gets what I'm talking about. Performers, actors, they suck. I hope I'm not offending anybody. No one's listening, Chris. It's fine. Did you ever see that show Station Eleven on HBO? I don't think it did very well. It was like there was buzz around it when it came out, but then everybody stop talking about it anyway i watched it and um i liked episode one but then in episode two it became about this merry band of players and oh we're all actors and this is the most important thing to us and then i got turned off to it david mamet is a asshole we can all agree on that he's a right-wing crank that whines about cancel culture but his whole thing about acting it might not be true it may not be right but it's kind of satisfying he says yeah Say your lines. Stand there. What's the subtext? None of your fucking business. The playwright put it in there. Your job is to speak up, stand there, say your lines. I get that it's, there's more to it than that. I just, it's it's fun to hear somebody say that. Especially if you're, you don't like actors. Can we talk about Gypsy? That's what we came here to do. So yeah, Gypsy. Julie Stein wrote the music. Stephen Sondheim wrote the lyrics. And Julie Stein sounds like a really nice guy. To me in this Craig Zayden book I'm not a huge fan of his music the music in Gypsy is fun it's got some pretty good songs in it and I had to look him up to be honest with you because his career was I guess a blind spot for me as well some of the pre-golden age musicals I don't know that well High Button Shoes I guess was his first big one 
And I found out, this is a side note, I went down a bit of a Wikipedia rabbit hole with this one. Um, he did the songs for a ill-fated theme park called Freedom Land <laughs> in the Bronx. They built on a marsh that uh, was supposed to be a little theme park version of America that nobody liked. Because why not just go to America? Just like Disney's California Adventures. You're already here. Look around. You don't need the theme park version. Um, the style, Julie Stein's writing style, Sondheim says that um, he writes fast and he throws them out there. And if you have notes on something, he'll be like, I'll write another one. Whereas Sondheim is more economical. He holds on to everything. And Bernstein apparently was the same way. I think that I'm more like Julie Stein, personally. I can relate to that. I write fast and I write often. I like to just keep on going. Uh, also, Steve calls Julie Stein a tunesmith. Or I guess Julie Stein calls himself a tunesmith. And I will not call sometimes Steve again like I just did. That was offensive. And I it annoys me when people do that. Stephen Sondheim calls Julie Stein a tunesmith. Meaning he, instead of sitting down and writing a multifaceted baroque piece of music with moving parts he kind of comes up with a tune and a melody and uh, some i guess some tonic chords and grinds out a tune sondheim speaks pretty affectionately about julie stein but i know that he has contempt for tunesmiths based on things he said in fact sondheim's contempt for tunesmiths is what made me to intimidated to ever learn how to be a composer for real because or call myself one because I was like I'm not a composer I'm a tunesmith I can't even notate these fucking notes well Mel Brooks as we all know won an award for best score for the producers and that motherfucker couldn't tell you what a B flat was if you drew him a map he just hums into a tape recorder and says, here, set this to music. Somebody writes it down. Anyway, we don't need to draw these lines, although sometimes does know what he's talking about. Ethel Merman, it's interesting. So they mentioned this in the Zayden book that Merman never sang the triplets correctly on Everything's Coming Up Roses. And I didn't even need to hear it back, but I was like, God damn it, you're right, she doesn't. Listen to Ethel Merman singing the refrain line on Everything's Coming Up Roses. She's a little behind the beat. Everything's coming up roses! And then you, you, you can't unhear it after you've heard it. It's outrageous. I get that Ethel Merman is an icon and a wonderful woman. But come on, Ethel, let's get those triplets down. Uh, learn your learn your triplets. Sondheim says, Not enough songwriters understand the function of a song in a play. They write songs in which a character explains himself. This is so self-defeating because the song should reveal the character to the audience. The character doesn't have that self-knowledge. We do. He doesn't. But that's the problem with most shows. Characters coming out and singing about their drives. This has sort of informed this bullshit idea that you need a musical theater I want song at the beginning of a show. And people that 
are into musicals, writing musicals, producing musicals. They talk about the I Want song like it's fucking string theory. And it's just something that we all need to subscribe to. I think there maybe is. I think there's value in learning those rules before you break them. But you should break them. I see a musical theater want song coming a mile away, and it bores me, quite frankly. And I'm not even sure that's what he's talking about here. I think I'm conflating two things. But in Gypsy, there's a lot of that going on. I think Everything's Coming Up Roses is probably the best example of it. That's like a extremely deluded person saying a, like an extremely deluded thing to and singing it in front of an audience that's shaking their heads at how deluded she is. Which is fun. It's uh, complicated. It's creepy. Here's a weird thing about Gypsy. There's a huge cast of just like walk-on characters. I don't think uh, financially you could do this on Broadway anymore. Even a show like Hamilton, you gotta double up some guys. With uh, Lafayette and Jefferson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get that that probably wasn't an economical decision and there was a reason for that. What I'm saying is, it's insane to me that you get Uncle Jocko and then in the first scene and then no more Uncle Jocko. And then June is gone before intermission. Never see her again. She doesn't pop back in. My girlfriend was concerned about that watching the movie. What happened to June? I'm going to hear from June. Fuck June. June doesn't matter. That's why it's all the more devastating when Herbie walks out. Because you know he's walking out. Because people that leave this story, they don't come back to this story. Speaking of Herbie, Jack Klugman, original Herbie, was the first case of Sondheim favoring non-singers for his shows. I guess he did in West Side Story too. It probably wasn't his decision. But he really liked Jack Klugman, even though Jack Klugman was admittedly not a singer. You know Klugman if you saw him. He's in 12 Angry Men. He's in that goddamn... Uh... Is he in... On the Waterfront? He's in a lot. He's in that fucking pool-playing Twilight Zone episode with Jonathan Winters. Jack Klugman's great. He also lived to be 7,000 years old. I think he just died. Is that right? Anyway. Sondheim favors non-singers. He likes actors that can be taught to sing. And I think that he has great success with this. Also, this is a personal preference. I'm going to interrupt the gypsy talk to give another personal preference. Because why not? This is my podcast. I don't give a fuck. This idea of can sing versus can't sing really annoys me. It pisses me off. Because um, I think that it's all completely subjective. And moves with the fashions and styles of the time. If somebody says, Yeah, Bob Dylan writes good songs, but he, uh, if only he could sing... I want to rip their throat out. The thing is, maybe and outside of the realm of musicals, when it comes to singer-songwriter stuff, the songs, the singer-songwriters that I tend to gravitate towards are ones with, let's say, non-traditional voices. The aforementioned Bob Dylan, uh, Connor Oberst, 
John Darniel of the Mountain Goats, the young man from Modest Mouse. <laughs> These are all funny sounding guys, uh, funny sounding people. And, but it's not that they have bad voices. It's that they have unique voices that are satisfying to hear for me. So what me what makes a singer a good singer? Perry Como? We don't think that's good anymore. Like you're not considered a good singer if you say, I am singing a song today. I should have said Al Jolson. I don't know how Perry Como sounds. He might not sound like that at all. And I apologize if that was really loud to everybody at home listening to this podcast. So never say that somebody can sing or somebody can't sing. And let me get even more serious. Never tell a child they can sing or tell a child that they or anybody else can't sing. Because you may not know it, but you have just fucked up their life. It's an uncool thing to say. He never really says it outright explicitly in any of the, either of these books in the Zayden book or in his Finishing the Hat book. But Sondheim clearly <laughs> doesn't like Ethel Merman and did not like working with her, but is too afraid to say it outright. There was, at one, there was one point where he, <laughs> she refused to let him add a verse to some people and he did, like, tried to see what his rights were with the Dramatist Guild to override her and he never got his way. He wanted it to start with a verse because he thought that the song started awkwardly, which it does, but I don't think in a bad way, maybe just because I'm so used to it or we're so used to it. There's sort of a note as says, I'm going to get my kids out. Some people. Um, that's my terrible Ethel Merman impression. In case you haven't noticed, I've done it like six times, three times. Um... I don't know. I, I think it's exciting just because it's different. It's, it's not smooth. And Rose is not smooth. She also, she didn't want to add that verse because she tells her father to go to hell in it. And Ethel thought that her fans wouldn't like it and wouldn't would stop rooting for her if she told the old man to go to hell that early in the show. And com uh, Sondheim, when he comments on this, he says, Rose didn't care what people thought of her. Merman did. Throwing shade. If you're into showbiz feuds, like that FX show with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, um, you should get into this Sondheim-Ethel Merman feud. Because they're both dead. Why does that matter? They cut a song out called Mama's Talking Soft, which was uh, sung by the children while Rose was seducing Herbie and it was in counterpoint to Small World. Wish they would have left it in because let's face it, Small World is not that exciting a song. And we could have used a little counterpoint there. Gypsy Super fans will remember in Rose's turn there's a Mama's Talking Soft section. They left that in even though they cut the song out. Apparently it didn't matter. What was that? Oh, my Alexa made a noise. Sorry about that. Ethel Merman is not in the film that they made in the 60s. Which is a shame because 
Rosalind Russell is just terrible in it. And it's just a bad movie overall. They made such unnecessary changes. However, through my own rigorous research this week, I found a sort of a he said, she said about that. In the Craig Zayden book, they frame it as a total tragedy burn on Merman, which I guess it is. It was her role. It was written for her. Certain people maybe thought she was too big for the movies, but certainly better than Rosalind Russell. And they said that Rosalind's husband, Frederick Bisson, had seen to it that she got the role, that his wife, Rosalind Russell, got the role. And my favorite thing about that is uh, Ethel called Rosalind's husband the Lizard of Roz. It's pretty good. But if you read the Wikipedia page of the movie, this is the high-level research I've been doing all over Wikipedia. Apparently, Fred Bisson and Rosalind Russell wanted to make a film adaptation of the source material, the original source material, which is Gypsy Rose Lee's memoir. But culturally, the story was so tied to the musical that they conceded and made a version of the musical with some edits and cuts. I mean, total mistake, waste of time, shouldn't have done it, but that's not... It's not the story that's told in that Zayden book that they pulled the guy pulled strings on behalf of his wife. Russell and Russell cannot sing. They did some weird Frankenstein's monster thing where they had a double singing some of her stuff, but then mixed it in with her weird gravelly voice singing other of the stuff. Natalie Wood, who, as we talked about last week, had Marnie Nixon singing for her, was singing for herself in this one, at least on Little Lamb. I wish that I could have seen the Angela Lansbury version of this. I don't know if there's anything available on that, if there's any filmed artifact of that. I did hear a clip of it on that other Sondheim podcast, and it sounds pretty good. I love Angela Lansbury. She also lived to be a million fucking years old. Apparently, based on the way that they talk about it, her rose was a bit more demented than Merman's Rose. Which I like. I like that idea. For reasons I will talk about very soon. I promise. My experience with Gypsy was first and foremost seeing the Bette Midler film 1993 on television with my family. My mother's friend John LaMotta is in that film. He plays Cigar which is a minor character, comes up later in the burlesque sequence. I guess they did, They just couldn't be bothered giving that guy a name. They just called him Cigar. They said this guy should have a cigar in his mouth the whole time. <laughs> and John LaMotta, my mom's friend, was uh, very typecast in this role. He was this New Yorker, big New York guy, John LaMotta. He was on ALF also. If you ever watched ALF, he was the neighbor on ALF. Funny thing about John LaMotta, he, I played basketball with him in front of my family home once when I was a little boy. And then for the next 15 years, as I emerged through adolescence, every time I saw John LaMotta, he said, how you doing, you still playing ball? Rest in peace, John LaMotta. You were a, a prize. So that TV movie in the early 90s, they did a similar thing with Bye Bye Birdie, which 
has a, had a similar problem. They made a shitty TV version in the 60s that departed too much from the original show. And then for some reason, yeah, both of those shows had 90s TV corrections that sort of went back and were more faithful to the show. And both are great. I will fight to the death uh, for Bye Bye Birdie, the TV version with Jason Alexander. That's just a good time. That was a formative thing for me. This isn't about that, though. This is about Gypsy. Also very good. Also a very good time. I was very titillated by the strippers. I'm not going to lie. Watching that, I was in middle school. I think I was younger than middle school. I may not have seen it when it aired. I may have lied to you about that by accident. I would have been too young, right? 1993? I would have been 10 years old. I must have seen it on VHS a couple years later. Except that one stripper, the Electra. She was not sexy. She was disturbing. But that was her whole thing. She was the, yeah, the goofy one. Believe it or not, Elizabeth Moss, star of Handmaid's Tale and Mad Men, is in Gypsy, the TV version, as young Louise. And she's great in it. Young June, believe it or not, is Lacey Chambert. Chambert. I don't know how you say that. From she started out from that TV show. Is it Party of Five? One of those. And then, of course, Mean Girls. You can't sit with us. And then since then, a lot of Lifetime movies. About finding love and finding oneself in the heartland. I was in Gypsy. In high school. 11th grade. I played Uncle Jocko and L.A., the farm boy. A bit of a double role there. And then really not a whole lot to do in the second act. <laughs> so um, the girl that played Rose in our production in high school... I was I had a huge crush on at the time prior to even us starting rehearsals or prior to casting she was so determined to get this role and was so wrong for it like or at least from where I was sitting at the time like I thought like oh that's that's too bad she really wants this there's no way she's going to get this because there's so much talent at this school and so many more Mama Rose-like girls that go here. I thought I was a shoe in to play Herbie in this show. I was very cocky. I'm pretty uh, self-defeating in a lot of ways, but I have I do have the ability to get cocky when it comes time to audition for a role, which is kind of necessary, which is why actors suck. Maybe they keep that cocky thing all the time. And maybe I suck. Maybe I don't just do it during audition season. But anyway, this girl is now a woman. And she's actually a relatively successful TV showrunner. And she got the part of Rose. I did not get the part of Herbie. A dear friend of mine got the part of Herbie instead of me. A more traditional Herbie type, if you ask me. I also didn't get the role of Tulsa because, by God, I couldn't dance. But I was crushed by this because I loved Herbie, the part of Herbie, as played by Peter Rygert in the 1993 version, which that guy's a weird actor, like just a weird guy. I remembered him from The Mask 
prior to seeing <laughs> Gypsy. I like really like that movie, The Mask, with Jim Carrey. And if you don't know who that is, now he 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 most recently I re- he was on Succession, looking real old and hairy, playing that lawyer that Greg's grandfather tries to set him up with, the like uh, real uh, anti-capitalism lawyer. He was also on The Sopranos. Anyway, Peter Rygert, his performance in this Gypsy is very weird. Like he, there are moments where he seems like he's kind of overacting, but then moments where he seems very real. But then the scene where he leaves, this guy swings for the fences on that fucking scene. Where I don't think I've seen anybody since then really go as hard as Peter Rygert as Herbie leaving he's like he screams at her he 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 has an emotional breakdown it's like i'm never coming back rose or we're never getting married it's like come on herbie and then he goes never and uh oh she's gonna be a star if it kills you and her she's gonna be a star pretty fucking intense so i wanted to play herbie didn't get the part of herbie my friend got the part of herbie Girl I had a crush on got the part of Rose, and I just sort of skulked into the background playing a farm boy that was taller than all the other farm boys. Generally, didn't uh, could not please the director as Uncle Jocko and my one Uncle Jocko scene at the beginning. Before Uncle Jocko disappears for the rest of the play, I also my uh, most recent brush with Gypsy was I did a little show called Side by Side by Sondheim about five years ago here in Los Angeles as a grown-up person. This is a sort of Sondheim anthology show. There are a couple of them, and maybe we'll talk about them later. Maybe we'll do a episode on one or two of them. This was the first one, Side by Side by Sondheim. It was first produced in the 70s, so it was like halfway through Sondheim's career, so all of the songs they include only go up to Pacific Overtures, which is weird. Like, why would you put that on in 2018? Why would you do a Sondheim show that doesn't include Into the Woods, Sunday the Park? Who cares? There are a few songs in that from Gypsy, but we did, I'm sorry to say, and this was not, this show was what it was, and it um, it pleased the crowd that it was meant to please. God, that sounds condescending. That's not what I meant by that. It was a good time. If you like Sondheim and you want to hear Sondheim songs decoupled from the original intentions and motivations of the characters they were written for, why not see Side by Side by Sondheim? One of the lower points of the show, if you ask me, and then I partly blame myself and partly blame the original compilers of this show, and I partly blame the theater that put it on, was uh, You Gotta Get a Gimmick, which is the song sung by the three strippers burlesque performers stripper you can call them strippers right yeah they call them strippers in the show miss mazeppa her gimmick is a trumpet and electra her gimmick is that she has an electric switch that turns lights on her in her bra and then tessie tora dressy tessie tora best name for a character ever her thing is that she does ballet Uh, there are three people in side by side by sondheim two women and one man I played that one man, and therefore I played one of these strippers. I played Dressy Tessie Tora, who was so much more demure than all the other ladies. 
and I wore, I dressed in drag for this. And it was one of those things where the whole joke was that I was a guy dressed in drag. You know, a little bit antiquated behind the times. Didn't really need to be done. And it wasn't funny. I wasn't good at it. I, I couldn't figure out how to make it the least bit interesting. And I don't think it was. So I'll take the hit on that. I don't mind. Let's talk about some of the themes in Gypsy, of which there are many. Some that are more obvious than others. And let me just... In case I haven't said this at any point, I, I love this musical. I love Gypsy. I mean, there are not too many of these shows I'm going to talk about that I don't love. I'm going to, I know I'm going to wax cynical about a lot of adjacent elements and about theater people. But this is a great show. This show succeeds on every level. Now, in finishing the hat, Sondheim a few different times, he credits Rodgers and Hammerstein with popularizing popularizing musicals that have compelling stories and characters that aren't one-dimensional. But, you know, uh, prior to this, you just had these stock characters. You had Adelaide. I gotta stop trying to do Adelaide's voice. I can't do it. Adelaide, you got that big Julie. From Also from Guys and Dolls. That's interesting. So Julie Stein, I was going to say, is like the only instance of somebody with the name Julie that's spelled that way. But here I am talking about Big Julie, spelled the same way. Anybody know anybody named Julie, spelled J-U-L-E? If you do, please uh, write into the show. It's interesting, though, this idea of Rodgers and Hammerstein. They, they made compelling stories with more complex characters because if you watch Oklahoma now it does seem pretty flat I guess it's uh, you know all that Judd Fry stuff is a little bit adds some complexity to it it's a little dark because he's the bad guy but you also kind of feel sorry for him interestingly enough Judd Fry and Big Julie are the two roles that I am eligible for in musical theater as a 6 foot 5 260 pound behemoth human being the character of Rose in Gypsy is complicated, obviously. It really hits different for me now, watching this. And the idea of showbiz people hits differently for me, too. And this is all my own baggage. I, I, I apologize to everything I said about showbiz people. But honestly, what the fuck with those boys traveling around, making no salary, and sharing an egg roll for every meal? What, what the fuck? What's that about? Stay home. Learn to code. So, I don't think I can talk about my feelings, my uh, complicated feelings about Gypsy without talking about my sort of complicated feelings with my own Mama Rose. When I was little, or when I was, let's say, 11, 12, I did a performance with my mom and my sister called... Motherhood, The Miracle, and The Madness. It was a three-person show starring my mother, my sister, and myself. Cooked up, put together by my mother. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I could say that I had a stage mom really growing up. I mean, it sure sounds like it based on what I just said, right? 
This was a performance with songs and scenes and recitation of like Irma Bombeck interactions. And, um, but it was about the experience of motherhood from my mother's point of view with me and my sister playing her children and performing like singing and dancing. This is, uh, this is a recipe for a uh, fucked up person, right? Anyway, maybe it isn't. I certainly fucked Louise up. Or maybe it didn't. I don't know. So since sort of not talking to my mom anymore, uh, I have a complicated reaction to the idea of uh, women with big feelings. I'll just say it. And... Um, it's something I sort of have to keep an eye on because women deserve to have big feelings. Everybody deserves to have big feelings. But the idea of a sort of a matriarchal situation where there's a woman who's like brassy and speaking her mind and maybe she's had a couple too many glasses of wine. but She's in charge here and you better get out of the way. I find this image very triggering. <laughs> And so watching Gypsy, I had some of these feelings. And it also, boy, I think Rose might be a monster. I think Rose might be like a horror movie villain. Now, this other podcast I listened to, this other Stephen Sondheim Pascal, they said no. They said she's not a monster. I think she might be. Or, or rather, let me put it this way. I think it would be interesting to do like an update of Gypsy that played in that area <laughs> that sort of took the brassy Ethel Merman paradigm that's the wrong word the the sort of the, the brassy Mama Rose thing and like flipped it inward and said no this person will not be redeemed this person is emotionally abusive and I'm not trying to get all millennial on you and say that, you know, uh, this is uh, toxic behavior. Everybody knows what this is. No one needs this explained to them. Everybody watches Gypsy and have certain feelings about it. And you can either watch it with a 1959 um, feeling of uh, adrenaline because there's an Ethel Merman on the stage and she's big and she's louder than life and this is amazing and she's mama rose and she's a strong female character which is what we need or you can watch it in 2023 as a 39 year old uh man who's arrested develop uh, development was arrested uh, and whose mom uh, was uh, complicated so yeah there's a couple things to think about but i think the interesting thing about uh gypsy is that it's about delusion Right, like this. This woman is a is a, a one woman fire festival. It's a it's delusional. She's delusional. Like the the the, the show is never good. I mean, the the show within a show. The from may we entertain you to let me entertain you to be the farm boys to the Hollywood blondes. Like it's never good. She thinks it is, and it never is. And the whole show is like. <laughs> The journey of somebody that thinks a thing that is really good when it isn't. And 
I mean, what she does to Louise and what she does to June and is horrible in two different ways. And the they talk about it, they talk about this in the Zayden book, that when they were just trying the show out, the big act one finale, of course, is everything's coming up roses, but there's a little scene on the train tracks before that happens where Rose finds out that June has run away with Tulsa and, you know, Herbie and Louise are saying, let's just quit, let's settle down, we don't need to do this anymore, let's just live a normal life. And then she's all silent and stoic and then she does this monologue saying like, I'm going to make you a star. Apparently when they first started this, there was an unexpected audience laugh on that that was like freaking them out, saying, oh man, they're not getting it. It's supposed to be this dramatic moment, but they're laughing. I think that that's great. I think that uh, they were wrong to be concerned about that. Or maybe it was just uh, too early in time. I think like, it's, it's uncomfortable for in a good way, right? Just like the end of the show, Rose's Turn, arguably the best song. Um, and probably the reason why they shouldn't have added that dumb fucking abbreviated scene with Louise after Rose's Turn. Like the show either should have ended with Rose's turn or should have ended some other way. But it seems like they got cold feet. Now, that's not how they characterize it. And, you know, far be it for me to tell Sondheim or Arthur Lawrence or anybody that they did anything wrong because I've written one shitty musical no one's ever heard. But it the way that it plays, it plays like similar to the end of Breaking Bad, <laughs> but it's like, but like super rushed where, um, you know, Walter White says, after six goddamn seasons of saying that he did it all for his family, like admits that he did it for himself. Rose kind of does that, but like real quick. But what's weird is that's not how they characterize it. And I'll get to that later. Sorry, fucking notes are not organized here. Let's talk a little bit about the source material Gypsy Rose Lee's memoir, which I knew nothing about until this very week, because and I it was funny, like I was never curious about it. Like what part of Gypsy are true to life and which part were invented by the team there? And I was surprised to learn a few things. First of all, this whole idea of not knowing how old they were, these kids. That was true. However, it was not necessarily because Rose wanted them to be like little babies forever so that they would be you know something that could be sold and they could keep performing and be kids it had more to do with i guess um labor laws in the different states like she would say she had a bunch of different passports for all of them and she would say that they were older to get uh, around labor laws and then she would say that they were younger to get uh, cheaper train fares so it was kind of a, a functional thing not an emotional thing and, um, yeah, so also this, the Mama Rose, the real life Mama Rose is, uh, a lot less sympathetic than, um, Rose in this, in the, in the play. I'm going to tell you that right now. She, uh, may or may not be a murderer. Three times. I mean, the thing is, I'm not trying to be a, uh, gossip columnist here by any means, but, uh, if there's question around one murder you can get the benefit of the doubt but then if there's 
questionable things around another murder and then questionable things around a third murder, you're probably a murderer. Uh, this is like the this is the Robert Durst theory. So um, there's a scene in the show where uh, Mr. Kringlein <laughs> comes in and uh, he's the landlord and he's all mad at her because he's got too many people there and she's cooking and breaking all the rules. And then there's a kind of a uncomfortable situation where then Rose pretends to be assaulted sexually by him and that's like saying her resourceful way of getting out of trouble. Um, what may or may not have happened in real life was a, a hotel manager got thrown out of a window and she said she did it out of self-defense. Now that may very well be true. You know, uh, I wasn't there. Were you? However, later on, she, right in front of the cops, tries to attack and kill <laughs> um, Tulsa. I, I, I don't think that's his real name in real life, but the, the, the guy that June runs off with, like, she has a confrontation with him in front of the police where she tries to kill him. And then much later, after the events of the musical are over, she's... Um, her stripper, successful stripper daughter, Louise, buys her a farm and somebody comes around and lives there for a while and uh, it's ruled a suicide when this person dies, but it's possible that she's... There's a story, there's a rumor, or there's reason to believe that this woman was Rose's lesbian lover and when Louise came to visit, Gypsy Rose Lee came to visit this woman like tried to like hit on her and that made Rose so jealous that she killed this woman. Now that sounds like a lie that somebody would make up about somebody. So all I'm saying is uh, there's a lot of smoke there. There was that much smoke. It could be fire. Um, Rose Havoc, which is their last name, by the way. Yeah, so this sounds like kind of an asshole. She sounds like she's not a nice person. And they waited for her to die uh, for June and Louise to both write their memoirs. So you do the math. Here's what Arthur Lawrence says about that last scene. I had an intention in that last scene that didn't quite come off. That Gypsy becomes Rose. The girl becomes the tough mother. And for all of Rose's toughness, she's just a little girl who wants to be recognized. Did anybody get that from the last scene of Gypsy? Because it doesn't seem that way. It seems like a tacked on weird happy ending. And okay, fine. You're, you're running out of time. But Rose should not admit that she did it for herself. She should stay deluded until the very end because she's singing Rose's turn. And that was like, that had never bothered me before, but watching it this time through, and this may be something really obvious I'm about to say, but the whole fucking show has been Rose's turn. This is not your one minute in the sun. Everything has been about you. That is obvious to everybody but you. So to have her sort of like quickly realize it at the end seems like a cop-out and a bullshit ending. Uh, but if that was their intention... I mean, maybe that would have been... That sounds interesting, but uh, it didn't come across. Let's talk about a couple of miscellaneous things here. Um, is it weird to anyone else? Talk about a couple of miscellaneous things here, too. I have a list. Uh, the whole sheet music thing. So they're going all over the country to all these different towns, to Uncle Jocko, to audition for Granziger, and... There's always an entire fucking orchestra that plays their music flawlessly. Now, I know this is a musical comedy and that it's not supposed to be true to reality and that, you know, 
people burst into songs with orchestras all the time uh, and it's inexplicable but what are we how are we supposed to believe that happened did rose have a big folder with all the orchestral parts that she just distributed to everybody in the orchestra every time or here's a better question for uncle jocko's kids vaudeville hour <laughs> whatever the fuck it's called did everybody in that audition like give their music to every person in the orchestra like or give a whole packet to the orchestra how the fuck does the orchestra know how to play all the all those parts of the orchestra know all of the songs I apologize if this is a stupid question. Speaking of orchestras, that overture is fire. Can we agree on that? It's an iconic overture. And kind of the last overture that matters, right? I There stopped being overtures at a certain point. There's a great overture to Merrily We Roll Along, by the way. But that sort of is, I think it exists maybe as a pastiche to earlier times. Um... I remember the Hollywood Bowl used to do fireworks spectaculars to the overture. What do you mean used to do? They probably did that once in 1998 when I gave a shit about things like that. <sighs> Ethel Merman. I mean, I don't know a lot about Ethel Merman other than she played Mama Rose and she played Reno Sweeney and she played Annie Oakley and she sang like this. So, um... There were no body mics on Broadway till 1964 with Funny Girl, and she was loud as fuck. And I'm wondering if that style of singing is like came out of necessity, because or were audiences so much more quiet so that you could hear shit like that? Like imagine like if you've been to the Winter Garden Theater or somewhere on Broadway, imagine being in there with no microphones, with an orchestra and a cast. Imagine being able to hear any of that. What the? How is that even possible? And is that why audiences suck now? Because everything's miked. I actually saw West Side Story at the Pantages when I was in middle school, and I, I remember thinking like this, like the, this. No, no. There's no energy to this because everybody's just sort of like film acting into their microphone. Precocious young man having precocious opinions. And this is just a fun fact. Stephen Sondheim's uh, the, the the New York Times review said Stephen Sondheim's lyrics are hackneyed. But it was a misprint, and it was supposed to say Stephen Sondheim's lyrics are unhackneyed. It's a bad fucking misprint. So, Bette Midler. Obviously very well cast in Gypsy. Born to play this role. I remember really liking her in it. I still like, I mean, she's, she's great in it. Um... Bette Midler on Twitter these days, though, is a little hard to uh, a little hard to take. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Not that that's the most important thing in the world, uh, somebody's behavior on Twitter. But, um, you know, and this is one of those times I feel like I need to qualify this by saying I don't like Donald Trump and I did not vote for Donald Trump and I don't care for Republicans generally. Um, if there is such a thing as Trump derangement syndrome, then I think Bette Midler is, you know, got a bad case of it and it's you know it's all true it's just uh, hearing it from Bette Midler Rob Reiner Kathy Griffin types like it, it gets a little stale and I wish that we did not have to unite with mutual resentment but uh and the worst she uh said some shit about West Virginia 
at one point that was pretty egregious a couple years ago uh, because she was mad about Joe Manchin, which is justified. Joe Manchin sucks. But she said, she tweeted, what Joe Manchin, who represents a population smaller than Brooklyn, has done to the rest of America who wants to move forward, not backward, like his state, is horrible. He sold us out. He wants us all to be just like his state, West Virginia, poor, illiterate, and strung out. So that that's not great to get these Hollywood liberal types saying things like that about people in uh, the Rust Belt, um, not just because we need their votes, but because it's kind of a shitty stereotype. Can we agree on that? We don't have to. That doesn't really matter in any of this. It's just a side note. All right, let's close this up. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the individual songs. Hopefully it won't be a debacle like it was last time when I tried to go song by song. I'm not going to go song by song. Uh, let's talk about the best songs in Gypsy. To me, my favorite song in Gypsy is If Mama Was Married. And I don't know why. Watching the Bette Midler version again of the, of the show the other day. I think maybe it's just because those two singers are really good. Like, especially that high harmony that June is hitting. It just sounds really good. That harmony. I think it's about the harmony. I enjoy the harmony on If Mama Was Married. Now, obviously, Rose's Turn is a great song. Um, and it's an, sort of an early flash of what Sondheim is going to do a whole lot later. Where it's a musical breakdown, emotion, uh, mental breakdown in a song. And he actually does this a lot. Um, most obviously off the top of my head in Follies at the end um, Ben Stone in Follies singing Live Laugh Love and then just like losing his mind at the end and a little bit in Company right before being alive that's sort of a musical breakdown obviously the epiphany in Sweeney Todd Franklin Shepard Inc and Merrily We Roll Along lot of examples of this and my favorite part maybe of the whole score, is in Rose's turn when, after she does, Mama's Gotta Let Go, and the music does that, and, yeah, I mean, that's very Sondheim-esque, and it's, it's kind of the best of Sondheim. It gets away from the pastiche of, like, doing the brassy vaudeville burlesque music, and then just music that is sort of timeless, but speaks to somebody's thoughts and feelings in the moment. And my favorite Sondheim moments are the moments where he does this, where you can't really place it in a genre or era. Because he does a lot of, you know, the, the, the reason I don't love Follies is because the majority of that show is old vaudeville songs, pastiche of old vaudeville songs. But I mean, the songs in there like "The Road You Didn't," "The Road You Didn't Take," and "Could I Leave," "The Road You Didn't Take," and "Could I Leave You." Those are not pastiche songs, and those are just character songs that cannot be traced to any genre. That's what I like in a Sondheim song, and you you, you get a few of those in nearly every show. And uh, this moment in Rose's turn, even though the music is not by him, is. Uh, one of the better ones. Uh, and I mean, right before that, the whole mama, 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 mama's got to let go. It's uh, effective. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that. I get very self-conscious when I say obvious things on this podcast, which of which 
this podcast that may be just full of obvious things. Here's what Arthur Lawrence says about Rose's turn. It's an emotional summation in words and music. And because it's so enormous a moment for the character, the conventional song form was thrown out to provide the required freedom. Unfortunately, the form has since been come, become formula and not done nearly as well. In the theater, artistry is as important as originality. Which is a pretty spicy thing to say. Arthur Lawrence, he's throwing shade on some. What are some examples of this? Um, like an example of this uh, formula being done not as well. Say it with me now. Three, two, one. Cabaret. Just kidding. Cabaret is a fine song. And that's a fine 11 o'clock number. Javert's Suicide. I don't think that counts as one. That one does deviate from form. Uh, the Memory from Cats. Is that what that is? Is that a summation? Not really. Cats doesn't. Has no moving parts that can be summed up to a sum. There was a whole thing where they changed the end. Sondheim wanted to deny that song applause, and he was like so proud of that. It was so revolutionary. He convinced Julie Stein into not ending on a tonic chord where everybody was like, "Yeah." Then his buddy Hammerstein came and saw it and said, "You're out of your mind." You, you need to give Ethel Merman her applause on that. That's a powerhouse number. Who needs an applause? Oscar Hammerstein knows a lot more than I do, but I disagree. I think that would have been cool. I was in a production of Parade in Orange County a few years back. It was one of the better shows I've been involved in, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, and one of the better directors I've worked with, uh, Carrie Hader. I'll use her name. I don't use the name of people that I partially denigrate but i got nothing but love for, for carrie hater um she i i played the the prosecutor dorsey and that song that uh, jim conley sings that's what he said the guy playing our jim conley was so fucking good and he it was just like a joy watching him sing this song every night um he was just so good at it and my, I had the next cue after the song. It's like, a, uh, that's what he said. And I say, Jim, or like, you know, thank you, Jim, or something. Because I'm the one questioning him on the witness stand. And I, she kept giving me a note during rehearsals saying, like, get right on that gym. That's what the, these were notes sent digitally um, after, you know, during tech week uh, via email and a list of notes to everybody. Get right on that gym. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? I kept, like, I guess not doing it because she kept saying, like, come on, Chris, get right on that gym. And finally, I was like, what do you mean by get right on that gym? And she said, I want to deny the song an applause break. And so what she meant was, uh, I was supposed to be, that's what he said, Jim. The line was Jim. So get right on that gym meant say Jim right away after the song so that the audience didn't applaud. And that seemed insane to me at first. I'm saying, like, oh, man. Robert's not going to get an applause on this fucking powerhouse number. But it made it really creepy. Made it real spooky, which is how it should have been, because that's a spooky song. Anyway, Rose's turn. Great song. Some People is a really nice song. It's weird that it takes so long to get to it as an opening number, and that there's a whole, like, may we entertain you before that in a book scene, and then finally we get into the musical musicalness of it all. Like at the end of the second scene. 
Fun fact, uh, original cast recording, the spoken line, you ain't getting 88 cents for me, Rose. That is Stephen Sondheim himself because they forgot to tell that actor to show up for the session because they forgot there was a line in the middle of the song. So they just said, hey, you, lyricist, say that line. Um, when I had my kids' troupe of performers uh, with that co-teacher that rode them too hard and said the show must go on, um, I would often use some people because I, 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 find, I find it very charming when grade school-aged kids sing some people. And listen, I like Have an Egg Roll, Mr. Goldstone. I don't give a fuck if it's a one-joke list song. I know Sondheim doesn't like it. Um, but, you know, Sondheim loves Cole Porter so much. Why does he like Cole Porter? <laughs> like, if he doesn't like list songs, why does he tolerate a song like You're the Top or Friendship, where, you know, we have to stop the entire show to get a list of reasons why this person is the top or you know you're the you're a dance in bali you're a hot tamale you're a melody of a symphony by strauss that's pretty dull but during if it's staged right i mean uh, have an egg roll mr goldstone is great because it's uh, they're celebrating they're having this moment of celebration who cares um what songs are not good together wherever we go that song's fine it's just the placement of that song is weird it's at the top of the second act, and it doesn't need to be there. Sondheim and Julie Stein had a disagreement about Small World because there was that line, funny, I'm a woman with children, Small World, isn't it? And Julie Stein was like, well, now a man can't sing it when we sell this song. And Sondheim was like, that doesn't matter. you got to write to character sometimes. You can't worry about uh, what Sinatra can do with it. And that's sort of a thing that Sondheim has done his whole career. He, his songs are character specific, which is why shows like Side by Side by Sondheim and Putting It Together ultimately fail because they remove all the context. These are very context heavy songs. Um, if you know the musical Jekyll and Hyde, <laughs> that musical makes me laugh because it's full of original songs. It's not a jukebox musical, but it seems like one because every one of the songs has lyrics that are just begging to be like number one hit singles. Um, just like this is the moment. Like at no point does he say, I have my potion and I'm gonna fucking drink it and finish my experiment. It's just like a general song about somebody reaching a moment in their life. Anyway, Sondheim wasn't playing that fucking game. He uh, wrote to character at all times. So um, anyway, together wherever we go doesn't seem like it should be there. Because it's just a very general song about how, hey, we're all going to stick together wherever we go. And uh, I don't like it. And I won't stand for it, ladies and gentlemen. I think this concludes my episode about Gypsy. And, um, yeah, wow, a minute 13, which is, I, I remember pre-editing, that's how long the last one was. I think the difference between this episode and that episode is I have tired myself out with this one. I have to pee. I'm sick of talking about Gypsy. West Side Story, I had to stop myself. Is it because I'm a chauvinist? You decide. But again, I like Gypsy. Gypsy's great. Got nothing against Gypsy. 
Join me next week, where I may or may not be talking about a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And that's all I got. Enjoy the rest of your week. Oh, god damn it. Okay, I have to have another... <laughs> I wasn't ready with this. I'm going to Google another Sondheim quote about goodbye. Because I, I don't want to do the same one. Sondheim quote about goodbye, which is not good grammar. On Best quotes from... Give me one second here. Okay, here we go. No more questions, please. No more podcast content. Comes the day you say, what for? Please. Stop fucking talking about Gypsy. I disappoint. And now I disappear. Disappear.